the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour uh, here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. Once again, Alan Dempsey, he does the engineering, does it extremely well. Uh, Andrew Herdliska is our producer. And Julie and Greg Gorman join us in the first half hour. They're the founders of Gorman Leadership and the authors of Two Are Better Than One. And uh, we're going to be chatting with them here for the next 30 minutes. So glad they can join us. Julie, Greg, I hope things are well with you. We're doing fantastic and enjoying the sunny weather just like you. Good stuff. Uh, The Gormans (laughs) live in Hobe Sound, uh, Florida, in South Florida. And uh, we're going to talk about their book, Two Are Better Than One. Uh, Greg, uh, what's the book about? Why did you write it? Uh, we, uh, I'll tell you, it's funny because when we, when God first spoke to us about writing this book, uh, Julie and I both kind of looked at each other and then looked up to the heavens and said, Lord, really? You want us to write this book? I mean, another book on marriage? Another book on purpose? Hasn't that been done? <laughs> But what he really breathed into life through us uh, was something that really hadn't been done yet, and it's very, very fresh. And so the whole idea is is that uh, as a couple, uh, we noticed over the years, uh, we've worked with couples for two decades, that some couples would uh, work the formula, if you will. They'd be doing all the right things, but they weren't reaping the right results, if you will. Other couples were using the formula, if you will, and uh, they were coming out with great results. And we're like, wow, what's really the defining difference? And what we discovered is is that the couples who thrive really focus together on a common purpose together. And uh, it just really bridges a lot of uh, gaps in our relationship and causes us to come together and celebrate one another than pick each other apart. Julie, the first chapter is called, What's the Big Idea? Question mark. Uh, fill us in on that. Uh, that's how you start the book. Yeah, the the whole concept is God has a purpose for my life. God has a purpose for Greg's life. God has a purpose for each person in that marital relationship. And what's really great, Pat, is that not only does he have a purpose for us individually, but he has a purpose for us that unites us together as a couple. You, You look way back into the garden, right, with Adam and Eve. And he commissions them. He compels them to go forth, to multiply, to subdue the earth, right? Uh, and that vision, that call for Adam and Eve would only be accomplished if they united together physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so the big idea is that God is as creative, um, our purpose, rather, is as creative as God is. He has a unique design. And so when we married, 
He had a plan and an intention for our marriage, and our purpose for writing this book was to help them see that big idea and to live into it. Craig, the next thing I want you to talk about, um, are there clues? All the chapters, by the way, folks, are question marks. So here's the second question. Are there clues, Greg? There really are. And what's what's really funny about this, and maybe not so funny, with so many of our clients and uh, even in our own selves, as we begin to attack or begin to really uh, uh, begin to sift through this idea of purpose, uh, let's face it, it can be daunting. It can be a little intimidating. Um, we experience personally thoughts like, gosh, I, I, I don't want to get it wrong. don't want to screw this one up. And, and um, statistically, 92 to 98% of evangelical Christians don't know what their God-given purpose is. And one of the illustrations we use is, you know, if we held up an ink pen and we ask an audience, what's the purpose of this ink pen? I'm betting almost everybody Everybody, in fact, would know the answer to that question of what the purpose of an ink pen is. We could hold up eyeglasses. We could hold up, you know, any number of uh, innate objects. But when it comes to our own self, it just, it just, I think, sometimes becomes daunting. And here's the truth. Here's the truth. It's really not that daunting. The evidence is there. We just have to seek for how our Creator actually created us and designed us and, and, and acknowledge the things that we really are passionate about, the things that we really do desire. And then when we align those uh, and, and check Scripture to make sure that we're not just doing something in a sinful nature, then it becomes a lot more obvious. We start looking at our talents. We start looking at what our passions are. And when we look at those things, they become real evidence of what our passion and purpose is. When we combine those together, then two are truly better than one because she's got strengths I don't have. And when we uh, leverage those, then it just makes us that much more powerful and able to accomplish a unique uh, purpose that God has given us. Julie, uh, do you live problem-focused or purpose-focused? Oh, now you're asking me that question. (laughs) You know, today... Today, uh, as a model for my life, I really do believe that God's helped me to shift my thinking from problematic focus to purpose-focused, and really that's what the book is about. As much as it's uh, helping couples with a process to discover their God-given purpose, right, it's more a, a change in habit. It's a new way of thinking. And what we encourage couples to do is not to approach this as another to-do list. It's rather a celebration of who they are as a couple. And so you think about relationships today, Pat, most of them, even good, healthy ones, uh, if, if they start having a little bit of trouble, the tendency is to say, oh, well, here's our problem, here's our issue, let's go fix it. The problem with problematic thinking is that if we constantly are giving our energy and attention to a problem, there's always going to be another problem. Once we master that problem, there's going to be another one that resurfaces. But our victory, our hope as a married couple, the way that we experience the most life is when we focus on God's purpose for our marriage. And then we we gain the strength to know what to say no to and what to say yes to. It's kind of like when David, right, just as a short kind of Bible illustration, David stood before Goliath. And it wasn't that Goliath wasn't real. Trust me, there was there were some real issues in the land with him and his threats. So we're not saying that problems don't exist in the relationship. 
But rather than looking at that giant, feeling overwhelmed by that giant, trying to focus on how he's going to take down the giant, what the, the reason why David had the victory where the other men were shaking in their armors, they, they got lost in the problem. Rather than focusing on God, who is the solution, and what David remembered was that Israel was meant to rule, not to be ruled. And so he came against Goliath with the truth. He came at him with, with an end vision already in mind. My guests are Julie and Greg Gorman. Their book is called Two Are Better Than One. God Has a Purpose for Your Marriage. A Broad Street Publishing put the book out. Greg, let's talk about how does God confirm his purpose? God directs us through his word, first of all. And, uh, you know, so often as we begin, as human beings, I think, begin to um, have difficulties or begin to try to accomplish things, uh, I don't know about y'all, but so many times I find myself going, oh, wow, why didn't I ask God about that? (laughs) You know, I'll ask him about the big things, uh, and sometimes I forget to ask him about the little things. And uh, I think that he's given us a manual. I really believe that. And, and I believe that God directs us through his word. And then he confirms through our circumstances so many times. And then he also surrounds us with key, key people to affirm his direction. And so I think it all begins by simply asking, Lord, what do you desire for our marriage? And, and, and he'll speak to us if we'll be quiet. And listen, I, I know that, that, that there's probably not anybody on this call who would argue that point. I think that, the, the, that sometimes the issue comes into play is that we don't stop long enough to really hear. And we don't actually stop long enough to even dig around with what's already inside of us. And when we nail it, when we get it, then it feels good. It really does. It's, he's not asking us to do what Jesus did to, to, to be crucified, right? Hopefully our uh, purpose will be something a little bit more enthusiastic. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be pain along the way or some um, you know, mountains we need to hurdle. Uh, but if we ask him and we invite him, then he will confirm it through all of those different things, his circum- the circumstances, uh, the people around us, and, um, and through his word. Julie and Greg Gorman are our guests, talking about their book, Two Are Better Than One. Uh, We've got more with Julie and Greg right after this. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN right here in Orlando, Florida. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Join Richard Jordan, president of Grace School of the Bible, as he opens God's Word every Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. If you missed the Sunday broadcast, you can listen and study along with Dr. Jordan 24-7 at WTLN.com by clicking on the podcast tab and then Riches of Grace. Riches of Grace, a service of Grace Impact Ministries at GraceImpact.org. 5.30 Sunday on the new 94. 4.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Have you racked up more than $10,000 in credit card debt? Are you barely getting by, making minimum payments? You should know the credit card companies are tricking you into thinking there's no way out. 
Credit card companies would rather you didn't know that there are ways you can become debt-free and you don't have to pay the entire amount you owe. There are debt relief programs that help people like you escape overwhelming credit card debt. National Debt Relief has helped tens of thousands of people just like you reduce more than $500 million of debt. National Debt Relief has helped so many people, they're A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau. You don't have to declare bankruptcy or take out a consolidation loan. You have the right to settle your debt for a mere fraction of what you owe. Reduce a large portion of your debt now. Call National Debt Relief at 800-518-4020. 800-518-4020. There's a lot of curiosity about the second coming of Christ, even among non-Christians. Even Jesus' closest followers, the disciples, craved more details. So our Lord sat with them on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem and filled in some of the blanks. Their questions were no different than ours. For answers, join us this week on Through the Bible with Dr. McKee. Weekdays at 2.30 and 9.30 p.m. on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Julie and Greg Gorman are with us from Hobe Sound, Florida, talking about their book, Two Are Better Than One. Julie, why are we so different? That's another topic that comes up here. Uh, what's your answer? Oh, man. You know, we, we work with couples all the time, and, and at some point they kind of look at it, one another and think, what do we possibly even have in common? We're so different from one another. And what we try to do in the, the book, Pat, is to get a common ground um, and, and to pose timeless truths. And so one of the value-based principles from this particular chapter of, of why we're so different is simply the truth that devaluing one another's differences leads to dishonor. Dishonor instigates dissension, and dissension precedes destruction. And instead of looking at it being a right or a wrong way, like my way's right, his way's wrong, or his way's right, my way's wrong, approaching it that way, what we're trying to help couples do is celebrate their differences. It's, it's those initial things that we found so attractive, if we're not careful, become the very things that cause dissension in our relationship, and we begin to try to want to change one another. So we celebrate differences and help couples celebrate the unique designs that they bring to the relationship, because it's not just about tolerating one another, it's about celebrating one another. And one of the illustrations that Greg really zeroes in on at conferences and in this chapter is for one piece of iron to sharpen another piece of iron, friction is imperative because it's sharpening occurs as one smooth uh, edge hits a sharp edge and it's in that roughness and the smoothness coming together, grinding together, that sharpness actually takes place. And so we recognize being uh, different is actually a great gift that God designed from the very beginning. Greg, what's our common ground? That's topic six. Uh, well, of course, as we come together and, and um, we begin to think about what's our common purpose that we share together, uh, that God has us together to accomplish and achieve. And by the way, that doesn't mean platform ministry. 
to some people that's what it means. But to some people it means that we've got a couple recently that went through this uh, book and the curriculum and the exercises and such, and, and they're both passionate about health. And so their common ground is that they are passionate and have enthusiasm, shared enthusiasm about things that make them healthy. And so they're out right now playing golf with other couples, and in the process of that, obviously, they're being able to shine their light uh, by being who they are and doing something that they enjoy together, which pulls them closer together as well. So when we look at Common Ground, and we've actually, um, the book in the latter half of the book uh, really shifts into, there's still lots of stories and, and things of that nature, but there's a little bit more process driven at that point too. And one of the things we have couples do is to talk about about um, what their common core values are. So we'll send the husband off to make a list of his core values, and we instruct them on how to do that. And we send the wife off to do the same thing. And then as they list those out, what's really interesting is that we've gone through this with couples. When they come back together, uh, they love celebrating and realizing that they have some common values that are, in fact, in common. We also have them do common interests lists. And when they come together, it's been so fun to watch couples who have been married sometimes 40, 50 years, and they come back, and they're like, wow, we were you know, so focused on the fact that we didn't have anything in common anymore. But now as we look at this list, we're actually celebrating the fact that we got a whole lot more in common than what we thought we did. So when we do that, again, it really allows us to be able to celebrate one another and our common values and our common interests and begin to leverage those for a particular purpose. Because just like any organization, if we go into a company and we're trying to help them become more productive or cut costs or whatever, they, as, a, as an organization, have to understand what this company and or this department's specific purpose is in order to accomplish it. And we as couples are absolutely no different than that. If we understand what it is, then it allows us to move together in unison towards that. And that's where that common ground comes in as another, another level of celebration of who we are and our uniqueness. Julie, what fuels our purpose? Great question. You know, the uh, we, we coach couples all the time to begin with the end in mind, which is a thought from Stephen Covey, um, just to begin with the end in mind. So that begins by asking the question, what is it that we want for our marriage? What is it that we really, truly want? Not what we're expected to want, not what everybody else tells us is important, but what is that unique uh, aspect? Like, for example, golfing is not Greg and I's cup of tea, right? Or, Or going and cooking is not necessarily something that we are extremely passionate about. But when we find common interests, And then we begin to say, God, what is it? You've made me this way. You've made Greg this way. And you have a collective purpose. And the more that we can envision the end result of that and how it can bring God glory, how it's going to bring him pleasure, how it's going to reveal his unconditional love. And we start from that framework of how a common interest and a common value and core values all work together Uh, and we see that, then we begin to live into it. So one of the exercises that we take couples through through the book um, is just to simply imagine their life at the end of 2000, not not their end of their life, but the end of this year. So 2017, we're going in, and the end of 2017, we, we are doing a celebration of what happened. What's on that DVD? 
what was accomplished. And the more, the further we can go out, the greater gain that we can have. But we can, we begin with just one year out and getting a vision for who we are, what we're doing, so that, again, we know what to say yes to and what we say no to. Greg, how do we define our purpose? That is a broad question. It really is. And I'll attempt to answer it um, the best way that I know how from, from this vantage point. It's a culmination of all of the things that we've talked about with you so far today. It really is because those 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 little exercises and uh, those uh, scriptures and stories and, and and examples that we use from so many other um, uh, marriages and, and and couples that we've worked with, including our own, um, really culminate to help the the uh, the evidence to bubble to the top. And, and, and what happens, what's so cool about that is at that point, it's, it's not like this deep thought process. Uh, we're able to look at what the evidence says, and then we begin to document that. We begin to, to marinate on all of those different key factors, and we hear from God what that actual purpose is. And one of the things of note that we believe is really key and really helps free up and unbind the process is uh, just to, to remind folks to don't allow what you don't know to trap you from establishing what you do know. You know, our friend John Maxwell said that the greatest mistake we make is living in constant fear that we'll make one. And, you know, again, in this process of discovering our purpose as a couple, uh, that we can fall prey to that. We kind of opened with that. So um, it's important just to keep our mind and our hearts open and look at what the actual evidence is in our life. I remember a while back I was really grappling with this, and one of the questions that Julie asked me, this has been several years ago, she said, where is the fruit from in your life come from? That in of itself was a key, key thing for me to think through uh, in as it comes to discovering my own purpose. Because I was headed in one direction, and I thought that God had given me gifts, and he had given me gifts in a certain area. There just hadn't been any open doors throughout my life to really produce any fruit from that particular gift. And so when she asked me that, I immediately I thought, well, gosh, it's been in inspiring people and in leadership. That's where it's been. And so it became so much more obvious through that question, really, what my giftings and really part of what the central part of my purpose in life is. And I think the same thing holds true as a couple. Julie, how do we protect God's purpose? I love how Andy Stanley said, direction, not intention, determines our end destination. And as a couple, we can want to live purpose-focused, right? We can want to live our lives in such a way that it brings God glory. And yet, we fail to put the steps in place that we need. And so, some of the things that we highlight in the book is to determine small steps, and we help couples walk through that way. Uh, We encourage them to take time to schedule for reflection and time where they can interact and talk, and, and we provide questions that can help them do some of those things. And then to manage for what's best and not sacrificing on the altar of the urgent, right, what's most important. 
And we, we help them to begin to learn what to manage for, what to manage against, and to begin to understand what their non-negotiables are so that they can safeguard them and protect them and fill their time not with busy activities but of things that bring forth life. And so we're really big on not the have-tos of life but the get-tos and helping couples create that shift so that once they have God's vision, once they've begun to land on the purpose that he has for their unique design in their relationship, they can pursue that with gusto. They can pursue it with all their energy and and not be trapped by a to-do list that just kind of takes the life from them. The book closes, Greg, with this question, and it's a good one for you. Now what? Yeah, I love it. You know, the 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 truth is is knowing your purpose is good, but it's 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 not good enough. Uh, our friend Scott Fay says uh, frequently that the biggest gap in life is that gap between knowing what to do and doing it. You know, wanting to live God's purpose is a noble desire, but want to and follow through are two entirely different things, really. You know, if we want a marriage that thrives, we've got to intentionally live purpose-focused. And again, this is something that we talk about um, frequently in that um, we most of us really need to retrain our thought patterns so that we are more purpose-focused than we are problem-focused. And we even provide a place on GormanLeadership.com uh, for couples to actually take this quiz. And it's just a, a free little quiz that's kind of fun to help them get an insight on what their habit of thinking is. And we believe that very, very much so the key to uh, uh, the results being sustainable is, in fact, um, understanding that, as King Solomon said, uh, as we think in our heart, so are we. You know, we do, in fact, gravitate towards what we think. So um, uh, we gravitate towards what we contemplate is the way we like to say it. So look at it this way. A person can want to lose weight, but their progress always depends on a process. And so... The now what is about the follow-through and continuing to use and discipline our minds um, to utilize the new information that we've learned to make a difference. And as we do that, then that discipline begins to really turn into inspired discipline because we begin to see the results and we hear from God more clearly and we can see how our marriage is improving. And now instead of something for us to be having to do, a lot of the things that at one point we dreaded, they become really get-tos and we're inspired by that. Julie, if there's one piece of advice you can share with a couple who's on the verge of giving up on their marriage... What would it be? Mm. Well, I want to pause there because almost two decades ago, that's where Greg and I were. Um, we we loved one another passionately, but we fought just as passionately. And the majority of our issues was because we were both loving me-focused instead of we-focused. And all of those things sound like a nice little way of encapsulating where we are. And, and the truth was is we felt overwhelmed. We felt in that same place. But as we began to invite the Holy Spirit to state his purpose for our marriage, to give us the next step actions, uh, like the Apostle Paul, we, we chose to forget what lied behind, right, and to press on towards that goal. And the truth is, is the thief, like Jesus said, comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. 
but Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. Julie and Greg Gorman have been our guest, founders of Gorman Leadership, and we've been talking about their new book, Two Are Better Than One. Our thanks to the Gormans. Uh, We will be back right after this for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN right here in Orlando, Florida. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Hello, I'm Pastor Glenn Riggs, inviting you to be our guest in celebrating all that the Lord has done and experience our pioneer spirit. We're excited to share Starlight Baptist new building with you. It's been several years in the making. We now can share God's Word with so many more souls in Central Florida through our many ministries here at Starlight. Please visit us at starlightbaptist.com. And don't miss the broadcast ministry of Starlight Baptist. What does the Bible say? Every weekday afternoon at 4 with Pastor Riggs, right here at the intersection of faith and reason. The new 94.9 FM. And AM 950 WTLN. Hi, Bill Files here, GM of Salem Media Group Orlando. You've heard me talk about Half Price Tuition, a great new program we have where folks just like you can purchase tuition to the finest Christian schools in Central Florida at half price. No catch, no kidding. I want to share with you some comments from a listener who recently purchased tuition for her daughter. This listener called me, and once she found out that the program was for real, she and her husband decided to buy it. She said, before we hang up, I wanted to thank you and to share with you that my husband and I have been praying for a way to send our girl to Christian school. Your half-price tuition program has made that possible. Thank you. This is what it's all about. If you or someone you know could benefit from our half-price tuition program, I hope you'll give me a call, 407-618-1760, or visit our website, AmazingRadioDeals.com. Half-price tuition, another positive idea from Salem Media Group Orlando. Schools like the Geneva School and Altamont Christian School are available right now. Go online to AmazingRadioDeals.com. This just in, death, destruction, and violence. Film at 11. Come on. Is all the news really bad? How about some good news in your daily routine? You'll find it when you log on to Christianity.com. They've got great devotionals, terrific Bible study tools, quizzes, and links to the day's most inspiring stories from around the web. Get good news every day when you set your homepage to Christianity.com. Make a difference in your Internet life. Christianity.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Julie and Greg Gorman were our guests in that first half hour. And um, now we switch to Derek Cooper up in Hatfield, Pennsylvania, Associate Professor of World Christian History at Biblical Theological Seminary. His new book is out, Introduction to World Christian History. Uh, Derek, tell me, uh, first of all, let me welcome you. I'm glad that we can visit and hope things are well with you. I am doing well, yeah. Thanks for having me. And then uh, I need the background on your book. What, uh, Where are we going here, and what prompted you to dig into this? Yeah, well, I teach world Christian history, which may sound a little strange to uh, listeners uh, in the terms of we're used to hearing about church history, so the history of Christianity. But there's a newer discipline emerging within church history that is world Christian history, which is trying to look at Christianity around the world from the very beginning. And so that's what I've been teaching for several years, and that's what's prompted me to write this book today. Uh, There are three major headings here, so uh, 
Let's dive in. Part one, Christianity from the first to the seventh centuries. Uh, what's going on in this period? Uh, we want you to teach us here, Derek. Yeah, so it's really common in church history to divide what we call the early church or the early period, early Christianity, between the first century and probably around the fourth century. So that's the, the teens, 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way to the 300s. And what I do in this book is I really expand and push that back because we go to the 600s, and uh, the reason is because Christianity is going to grow and it's going to expand in relation to Islam, and Islam is going to emerge in the 600s. And so I really think that we should push back the early period of Christianity all the way back to the 600s, because we're going to see Christianity in the second period, that's from the 600s on to the 1400s or so, that's when Christianity is going to change dramatically in places like Africa and the Middle East and even parts of Europe. So in the first part, uh, from the 100s or so to the 600s, we see a lot of development of Christianity. Christianity starts in the Middle East in what we today call Israel and Palestine, and it's going to expand in all different directions. So uh, in this book, I talk about that expansion in all cardinal directions. So we can think Geographically, we could start all the way north, and we'll see how Christianity is going to go into places like Turkey and uh, areas of Central Europe and northern parts of Europe. And it'll go into these places very early on. And then in the west, we are probably more familiar with Christianity as it goes into places like Italy and even all the way into England in the 300s or so. And then going down south, we can think of Christianity in this period going all the way down to Egypt and to Ethiopia and even all the way down into Sudan and uh, South Sudan today. And then in the east, what most people don't realize is that Christianity went all the way into Asia, all different parts of Asia. So even by this, this period in the 600s, Christianity has made its way into China. I'm interested, Derek, in, in how it came about. How was it moving uh, what was the key here? Yeah, the key is mobility. It's people who are moving and going, and so we can think of people who are merchants, people who were trying to make money and sell goods. So as I was just mentioning about China, we can think of what's called the Silk Road, which is uh, a really long stretch that's about 5,000 miles, depending on where you start and where you end. Usually it starts in the Middle East, uh, maybe around Turkey or so, or Syria, and then it will go all the way into China. And there were merchants, people who were selling goods. They could be selling spices, or they could be selling animals, selling clothing materials, even silkworms, uh, whatever you could be making money off of, people would be taking this and selling their goods. And as they sold their goods, they would also sell their religion. That is, that they would be teaching people about their religion. So you can imagine on this road to be merchants as well as missionaries, as well as just people who are moving constantly. And one of the things that's important about history is to realize that people are always on the move. We're really nomadic in nature, and in the ancient world, we didn't have borders like we did today, but people were just constantly moving, and when they moved, they took their religion with them. Take us now to the... Um Second key area, Christianity from the 8th to the 14th centuries. Uh, what was moving the faith at that point? Who were some of the key people? 
what what was uh, why was it stepping up at this point? Yeah, so uh, as Christianity went in, in each of these four cardinal directions in the early period, by the Middle Ages, we can think of the 600s, 700s, 800s, and so on, it had pretty much become static in certain regions. And specifically, we want to look at Europe. Uh, Europe is going to be dominated by what we call the Catholic Church, and it's going to become, the Catholic religion is going to become part and parcel of society. So we're going to see a, a movement called monasticism, which is where people, uh, specifically monks, are moving out into the countryside, and they're given this property by really wealthy people, and they establish these these uh, great monasteries that you can still visit today. If uh, we look in other places, such as the South, um, Islam emerges in the 600s, and it's going to be expanding rapidly. And even though Christianity was all throughout North Africa and the Middle East and Asia during this early period with the rise of Islam, many people are eventually going to convert to Islam. So we're going to see essentially the starving or the dying out of Christianity in many places in Africa, not all of them. In Ethiopia, for instance, Christianity is going to continue. It's going to retreat a little from the emergence of Islam, but it's still going to continue on. And if we want to look into the East, a similar thing happens in Asia. Islam is going to be expanding into places uh, like Turkey, as well as Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and so forth. And there, where Christianity existed, it's going to just be starved out. So uh, Christianity is, is moving, and Specifically in the West is where it's seeing most of its growth, and that's why a lot of us today think of church history as really a Western thing, and that's because Christianity uh, in the West is where it's going to survive and be strongest until eventually you get into the 13 and 1400s where there's a lot of technology, ships are being made, and countries like Spain and Portugal for the first time are going to be leaving their region and exploring new regions like in Africa and Asia. Why did Islam have such a incredibly fast start? Yeah, it's, it's a question a lot of historians uh, are always thinking about. Uh, one is, if we just think in terms of relig- you know, religion or spirituality, um, it was a powerful force, and it was a religion that, was, that is very logical and makes perfect sense in the sense of Christianity has room for a lot of mystery, uh, Islam does not have as much mystery. Things are very straightforward. There's five major pillars of Islam, and those can be followed and by anyone, depending on your. You know, it doesn't depend on your age or your background. It allows for mobility, uh, so it's it's a very accessible religion in that sense. If you want to look in a, another way, one of the reasons why I think Islam essentially took over the region of North Africa and the Middle East and parts of Asia is because Muslims had more children than Christians. So as I think originally it's Arab men who were going into places like in North Africa, I can think of Algeria, for instance, or Morocco today. And when they go into these regions, there's Christian communities there, but Islam is a religion that uh, has been growing largely through reproduction. And so uh, a man has a wife, and they have several children. 
let's say maybe five or six children as opposed to maybe two or three children from Christian families. So just based on that alone, it's inevitable that over hundreds of years Islam will be the dominant religion. And I should say one more thing would be in a society where Islam is the state religion, if you want to be prominent in that society, if you want to be successful, you essentially need to be Muslim. So if you wanted to have a good education or if you wanted to run for political office or even if you wanted to be in the military, all these things are predicated upon you having to be Muslim. My guest is Derek Cooper. We're talking about his book, Introduction to World Christian History. Uh, Another logical question, Derek, is... uh, the size and the strength of the Catholic Church during this whole period. Uh, How did that happen? It was something that was very gradual. It took hundreds and hundreds of years, but uh, essentially it's kind of hard for us to imagine, but the Catholic Church was, was really like its own kingdom. And you think of the Pope as the head of the Church. He really was in charge of a whole state. He actually owned land. So, uh, different parts of Italy uh, today, uh, if you go to Italy, if you go to the Vatican, it's just a small stretch of, uh, of land inside of Rome. But in the Middle Ages, there were thousands and thousands of acres that were actually owned by the papacy, that is, the Pope. And at the same time, all of the, the power in the Middle Ages was always yoked to religion. And so uh, the Middle Ages is about essentially this religious power that is trying to maintain as much power as possible, and you have these different kingdoms that emerge that are eventually states like England and France. And so the kings of these places are always fighting against the Pope uh, over who's going to be most powerful at this time. And in the sense of, uh, for the Catholic Church, they literally had the power over life and death. So it was commonly believed if we go back into the Middle Ages, most people couldn't read, most people didn't have any other way to get information. So they would just assume what was taught is the way it is. And so you have a priest who cannot read, who's probably never read the Bible before. He was taught without going to theological education. And so he's just taught whatever whatever someone said to him, and then he continues that on. So you see just the power of the Church would be really prominent at that time for hundreds of years. Where does Martin Luther uh, fit into this discussion, Derek? Martin Luther was born in 1484, and he was born in Germany, lived his whole life in Germany. He was a good Catholic. He would have been baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church. And he had a couple of experiences. One is in the early 1500s, he was a monk, and as a monk, he had to take on the vow of obedience, and he was required to run an errand to Rome, which would have taken him several weeks to to do that from Germany. And as he went into Rome, he saw all of the pilgrimages taking place, and he's really scandalized by a lot of the things that he saw. He was a good, pious Catholic boy, and he saw these things, and that really made him question his faith, and the authority behind that faith. He saw he would go to churches, for instance, and he would see that priests are not really interested in God, they're just interested in making money. And he saw the, the elaborate length to which people were making pilgrimage, and he thought that this was not healthy, this was not something that was good to do. People would be crawling on their knees, they would do all kinds of things that were uh, 
uh, not what he thought were true Christianity. So he took back those experiences with him, and as he began reading the Bible for the first time, and we have to remember, again, most people couldn't read. Martin Luther was very well educated because his dad made a lot of money uh, as a merchant, and he uh, was in school, and he began reading the Bible in graduate school. And he saw, you know, from his perspective, he saw a chasm between what the Bible taught and his experiences and what the Catholic Church was teaching. Derek Cooper is our guest. Derek, we've got about a minute before the break here. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about Christianity from the 15th to the 21st centuries. Uh, Can you give us about a 30-second tease here? And then we'll dive into it after these messages. Yeah, such an elaborate time, 500 years of history. But essentially, all the things that we know about the world today, they all come because of this time period. And uh, this is uh, the time where we see just unrivaled growth across the world, where Christianity really is a truly world uh, Christian religion, where it's going to be in every part of the globe. Derek Cooper, stay with us, folks. We want to hear about this uh, exciting adventure that Derek's going to teach us about. Uh, His book is called Introduction to World Christian History. IVP Academic put the book out. Uh, I'm Pat Williams, folks, uh, your host on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're always delighted when you join us. You're listening to the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Uh, More with Derek Cooper right after this. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Join Richard Jordan, president of Grace School of the Bible, as he opens God's Word every Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. If you missed the Sunday broadcast, you can listen and study along with Dr. Jordan 24-7 at WTLN.com by clicking on the podcast tab and then Riches of Grace. Riches of Grace, a service of Grace Impact Ministries at graceimpact.org. 5.30 Sunday on the new 94. 4.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Legal representation is often about personal values. Hello, I'm Karen Eastry, attorney for probate, estate planning, divorce, adoption, guardianship, issues concerning children and the aged. Call me at the law offices of Alper and Eastry at 407-869-0900. I am a lawyer who not only speaks for you, I share your values with the experience, energy, and enthusiasm to represent you effectively. My ultimate goal is to help you reach a satisfactory conclusion to your legal problems, to find peace, and to be able to move on with your life. Call me, Karen Eastry, at 407-869-0900, or visit my firm's website, altamontlaw.com. My office is conveniently located in Altamont Springs, close to I-4. So call today to make sure you have someone by your side at 407-869-0900. Offices, Altamont Springs. Do you have enough drinking water at home or work? 
whatever life throws at you. This is Florida, and you can never have enough good, wholesome drinking water on hand for meetings, family gatherings, even Mother Nature's wrath. Be prepared with Carolina Highland Mountain Spring Water, delivered directly to your home or business. Call now for their Be Prepared delivery special. Individual bottles, dispensers, and coolers. No contracts, no fees. Call 407-851-7144. Online at carolinabottledwater.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Derek Cooper is the author of Introduction to World Christian History, and he gave us a little tease, a little setup there uh, for the third part, Christianity from the 15th to the 21st centuries. So, Derek, uh, dive in a little more fully now. I want to I hear this. I know our listeners do, too. Yeah, so beginning in around the 1400s or so, these two major kingdoms in Western Europe, which they are Spain and Portugal, are making a lot of advances in technology, specifically on how they can uh, go around the world in in new boats that they've made. And so these uh, Portuguese and Spanish Christians travel around, and as they go into different places, they go into Africa and they go into Asia, they take with them Christianity. And so what we're going to see in the next 500 years in this time period is Christianity is just going to explode in numbers because for the first time Christianity is really going completely around the world. Before then it had gone into different parts, but a lot of these other places had been minority religions or minority faiths within larger religions. And so we'll see Christianity go into all throughout Africa, not just North Africa, but Sub-Saharan Africa, so going in all the way to South Africa and the very bottom, and Tanzania and Angola, all around the country. And then Christianity is going to go into Asia as well. And and Asia, it's possible that there are actually more Christians in China today than any country in the world. There are a lot of people who think that. It's not exactly certain, but Christianity is going to grow in China, especially from around the 1800s or so, and the past 200 years it's become a very large Christian population. Same can be said in South Korea, which is about a third of South Koreans are Christian. And, uh, of course, in Latin America, in the uh, late 1400s, the arrival of Christianity into South America, Central America. And so to this day, most all South America and Central America are Christian in orientation, so that the dominant religion is Christianity. And uh, in our own country in the United States, and just thinking in North America in general, Christianity is going to arrive at the same time, and we're just going to see this incredible growth of, of people where Christianity is originally coming through merchants, through explorers, through people who are expanding the world and seeing what's out there, and they take with them their faith, and then we have this just interesting development of Christianity around the world. What is ocean Oceania. Uh, you, you do a chapter on Oceania. What's that? Yeah, so we, we call it Oceana, and Oceana today is uh, an area that we would say around Australia. And so oh, okay, okay. Australia is both a, a country and it's also considered a continent. And instead of calling that whole area Australia, a lot of people are using the term Oceana. And you know, and the, and the term Oceana is ocean, and so you can just think of all of these thousands of islands in the Pacific. So Christianity is going to arrive there, and at different times, actually as early as the 1600s, but really it will take off in the 1800s and 1900s. 
And so places like Tonga, places like even Hawaii, and just these thousands of other islands, they're all going to be lumped together as Ocean, along with Australia and New Zealand and Tasmania. Derek, who do you think were the key people as far as North America is concerned in the spread of Christianity? I'd say uh, there's several different groups of people. One is just thinking the, the earliest uh, people who traveled into North America who were Christians were Catholic Christians coming from Spain. And so the, the Catholic Church was very strong across America. So where, where you are in, in the central Florida area, think of uh, several, eventually, their, you know, their missions and that turned into cities. So think of St. Augustine and so forth. So uh, if we go down south as well as west and California, New Mexico, Arizona, a lot of these missions, are places where the Catholic Church establishes houses that they try to attempt to convert local people there. So that would be one major influence, uh, the, kind of this group of people. Another would be the, the Protestants who arrived as early as the 1500s. We think of the Pilgrims and the Puritans. So they are going to play an important role, especially in the northeast part of the United States. But I'd say the 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 largest group after that would be in the 19th century, and this is when Christianity really is going to take off in the United States. So as people are going from the East Coast, going all the way into California and Oregon and so forth, we're going to see lots of different traditions or denominations emerge all across the United States. So I'd say, in my opinion, really the 1800s, that's the most important time period with all the different groups, and we can just think of there's literally hundreds of different denominations that are going to develop at this time period. Derek Cooper is the my guest. Introduction to World Christian History. Uh, the conclusion is titled this, Derek. World Christianity blowing where it wills. Uh, what, what does that mean? Yeah, so I took that from a passage in John chapter 3 when Jesus has this interesting conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus and Jesus are talking about the Spirit and talking about being born again. And there's this idea that the Spirit blows where it wills. It blows where it wishes. And in Christianity today, uh, we have about 7 billion people living on Earth, and about two and a half of those are Christians, or at least would identify as Christians. And that's from thousands of different denominations. But we see... What's taking place now is that Christianity is becoming less strong in the West, so in places like Europe and North America, and it's becoming more strong and more present in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and different parts of Asia and even being reignited in South America. So a lot of historians today like to talk about Christianity going south, going to the global south. And so this conclusion here, the Spirit blows where it wishes, the Church blows where it, where it goes, is in the sense of Christianity is, is really going down south, and it's exciting to see what's going to happen as Christianity is going to grow and become stronger in those regions. I forgot to ask you about Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mexico is uh, what we call Central America or, or Mesoamerica, and Mexican Christianity begins in the late 1400s, and Hernan Cortes arrives in uh, 
early 1490s inside of Mexico. But uh, eventually it's going to take off. There's a, a, a famous event in the 1530s, uh, which is when Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, which is a, an apparition of the Virgin Mary, appears to a young, uh, actually he's an older man who is uh, an Aztec, so a local man from Mexico, outside of Mexico City. And there, uh, it's a famous story that occurs, and you can visit it in Mexico City. There's uh, the famous clothing, the, the cloth that the man wore, that uh, the Virgin Mary uh, was, was believed to have put roses inside of his garment that weren't grown in Spain at that time, or in, in Mexico at that time of the year. And so, long story short, uh, Mexican Christianity is Catholic Christianity. There are some smaller Protestant denominations, uh, such as the uh, Mormonism, the LDS Church, so uh, even Jehovah's Witness. But for the most part, uh, when we think of Mexican Christianity, we should think of Catholic Christianity. Uh, the Catholicism of Spain really merges well with uh, the local beliefs of, of Maya and Aztec people. Derek, I should also ask you about Canada. Yeah, Canada is, is one of those places that's uh, usually ignored when we think about Christianity in general, but it has really kind of two parallel histories, and you can think one is British, which means that it's Protestant, and the other is French, which means that it's Catholic. And so there's a lot of uh, merchants and missionaries that arrived in Canada in the 1600s, and uh, to this day, this is sort of the, the bedrock foundation, is uh, Protestantism on the one hand as well as Catholicism on the other. But... Uh, Christianity in, in Canada has changed a lot in the past century or so. Like America, most all of the inhabitants of Canada uh, are, are, received, are, are gotten through immigration. So with uh, people coming in from all over the world, you know, coming from Asia and coming from Africa and different parts of Europe, Canada is, is uh, you know, a multi-ethnic population. And My guest, Derek Cooper... Uh, we've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your host, Dr. Daniel Forbes and attorney Delton Chen. Families by Design airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Well, thanks for joining us, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Julie and Greg Gorman joined us in the first half hour uh, talking about their new book, Two Are Better Than One, a good discussion about marriage. And then Derek Cooper joined us uh, from Hatfield, Pennsylvania, uh, to talk about introduction to world Christian history. So we got to sit in his classroom for about 30 minutes and uh, hear Derek Cooper teach to us. Um, please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page is Orlando Magic Pat. 
and uh, check out one of my most recent books. It's called Extreme Winning, uh, the 12 qualities that it takes to be an extreme winner in life. It's in bookstores now, and uh, Amazon.com, always a wonderful way to order books. Uh, Have a great day in church tomorrow with your family, and uh, we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason, the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.